Welcome to The Lab, a Cornerstone Gundog Academy podcast focused on all things gun dogs, good times, and the great outdoors. I'm your host, Barton Ramsey. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for hosting me at your house. It's beautiful here. Uh, I would love for you to tell uh, the people listening a little bit about where you are in the UK about this property and its connection to the estate here and, and how you came about being here. On, on, was it Staunton? Staunton Harold Estate. Um, yeah, we're centrally located in the UK, East Midlands region, so right in the middle of England, as it were, so very handy for road networks. Uh, in the county of Leicestershire, the Staunton Harold Estate is an old family estate, um, goes back to the Earl of Ferris, so a very historic estate, but we just have a barn situated in the middle of the National Forest um, on Forestry Commission ground. Um, it's a converted barn. And we've been here, I think, about 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's beautiful here. And you can just walk. You have, what, four acres in a yeah. pond that yeah. is a very uh, American-style training pond with an island and some some good features. And it's just right. I mean, we can see it out the window. So being able to walk out and train. Uh, yeah, it's ideally situated for the, and ideal for the dogs, as you say, because we've got our own little bit of land, but we're also surrounded on 360 degrees of um national forest land which is open access land so we can run the dogs on there as well mm, that's great um so 15 years or so here you talked a little bit about it with me last night how long has it been since you got your first labrador and tell us a little bit about that dog because i don't think it was i don't think you were getting set up immediately for running field trials uh, or maybe that was your goal i don't know but no. uh, well the story goes back a long way um to when i met my husband in zimbabwe we got married in 1998. He had a couple of black Labradors that were working bred, going back to British lines, I think. Um, and that kicked off my love of black Labradors. We then got a dog um, in that country that we were given um, a pup by Derek's brother for our, as a wedding present. Um, it was either that or a shower door, so we decided we'd go for the for the puppy um, and started to get involved loosely in a bit of gun dog work out in Zimbabwe with that dog. Um, very different to how things are here, but that was my, my toe dip as it were. And then we came back to this country in 99, end of summer 99. Um, unfortunately I had to leave that dog behind because we didn't know where we'd be in this country and we were renting um, and didn't have a dog for a while because we were getting settled in this country. And then we got our first Labrador in this country in 2000-ish, I think. Um, and she was half showbred and half working bred, which is what our lab in Zimbabwe was. Um, and naively, I thought, best of both worlds. So she was a nice-looking Labrador, nicely put together, um, and had some working background as well. Uh, now, with hindsight... Um, obviously I would have gone for a, a thoroughly working bread because um, that that seems to give you a lot more in terms of biddability and the desire mm. to work. So, But she was a good start into our world of Labrador ownership in this country. Lovely, lovely, temperamented dog um, and started us off on, a, off on a journey, really. Yeah, yeah. So that was over 23 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, when did you win your first field trial? Um, I took part in my first, uh, and not with that dog because she had 
several eliminating folks. Um, she enjoyed singing. Mm. Um, so we had a bit of noise. We had unsteadiness. She, she had a huge desire to work, um, but really wasn't quite the right material f- um, for working. So she she enjoyed retrieving. Um, and she just took me to a certain level, did some working tests with her, but she was never going to go um, much beyond that. Um, my next dog that I got was uh, fully working bred. Um, and that's the dog I took and did my first uh, novice field trial with in 2005. Um, and I actually won that, my first trial I'd ever been in. I won with that dog. So mm. she and I won first time out. Um, and she was nice dog, very, very hot headed, um, very hard going, hot headed dog. Um, of course, of an old fashioned dog, really. You don't see so many like that now. She wasn't the most biddable animal, but um, she had a very, very strong desire to work and strong drive. Um, and so, as I ran her in novice, she went straight into open. Again, my lack of experience, um, she was probably too much dog. Um, mm. to progress into opens she was she was too hot-headed um and then that took me on to my next dog which um became the foundation of my my breeding line and that was a, a bitch from jane fairclough job's hill mm. labradors job's hill gun dogs that was job's hill octavia uh she was born in 2006 i think um and I trained her very diligently, lovely, lovely animal, superly biddable, uh, took me by surprise after Nelly, the, the first field trial winner, because she, she so wanted to work with me and depend on me a little bit. Um, and she, we ended up going all the way and I qualified for the um, Retriever Championships and made her up to champion in 2009. Mm. Um, and she became, so she was my first champion. Um, and that was Prue. That was Prue. Yeah, Prue. lovely Prue. Um, and at that point, and I, I, there are a lot of people in America listening to this, so I want to back up into a few things that you said and help them understand. But at that point, when did you um, choose the name Staunton Bell? As here they call it an affix, so your your kennel name. Yeah. So she didn't have my affix on her because I'd already got. How it happens with the affix is you can't apply it once you've had a stud book number or once you've had a trial award. So you have to apply an affix um, prior to getting a trial award. Um, and I think, well, I put my affix on the next bitch, which I had also from Jane Faircroft, and that was uh, Job's Hill Lotter of Staunton Vale. So she was the first one that I put my affix on. I think I got my affix 2000, I don't know, B. So B was, it could have been 2008 I got the affix. So anyway, I did, I applied it to, to B and that was the first Okay. First time you used it. So, um, yeah, the the affix you you sort of, if you're breeding here, it's a requirement, right? I mean, you guys, you don't have to have one, um, but it's like uh, I suppose for you guys, it's like it's like a brand, so it's your your kennel, and you, you know what dogs are associated with your with that kennel, yeah. so it's it's nice to have. We uh, we get a lot of questions. I get a lot of questions about names of dogs that come from the UK because if you're in the US, it's it can be very confusing, but it's really simple. The typically the breeder kennel will have their name in the actual kennel club name, and if that dog was sold to or went to another kennel, they'll add of their exactly. name. So. Yeah, so a breeder can put a prefix on. So, for example, uh, Stauntervel Story. So the the prefix will come first, and then the name you want to give it, or, or Stauntervel Lemon Posset. 
Um, or you apply it if you if I bought a dog in from somewhere else. So my my recent champion, he's Jarrell Star Hogan, and then he's Jarrell Star Hogan of Staunton Vale. Yeah. So um, he belongs to my kennel now, but he wasn't bred by me. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. It's a good it's a good way to keep up with it. For if once you learn it, it's easy to kind of see. Yeah. It. So the breeder is the first name, um, and then if if it's of or at or or a suffix, that means it's been brought into that kennel. Awesome. So you mentioned you ran your first novice and won that one, and then you said the dog really wasn't was a little too much dog for you to go into opens in the U.S. in field trials. Mm-hmm. The novice has to be run by handlers who are unpaid. Uh, in other words, not a professional. And the, the open has to be or can be run by anybody. But if you are paid to train dogs professionally, you have to run in the open. So the distinguishing yeah. difference is not the dog. It's the handler. It's the handler. Right. And then in a hunt test, it's really just kind of open to whomever. It's just 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 the levels of dog work are what right. distinguishes. Here, that's quite different. So different. if you could... Just explain what is, we'll stick with field trials and then go to working tests. But for field trials in the UK, there's, there's, there are several levels. Yeah, uh, so if you could walk through those. So we stick with retrievers. Um, we have three classifications of field trial. We have novice, all aged and open. So novice is where you'd start off with your young dog, dog that's not won anything. Um, and as you say, it is the, it's the dog, not the handler. So you're still going to have professional paid handlers versus um, hobby handlers or you know, keen amateurs or whatever. It's nothing to do with the handler. It's the dog. So you start in novice um, and win out of that. So once you've had a win, you're then a qualified dog for an open stake. Now, open stakes in this country are hugely oversubscribed. So in theory, Anyone can put their name in a hat for a ballot into an open stake, but preference is given to dogs with a qualification, for example, okay. those that won a novice or had a place in, a, in an open. Um, so f- for all intents and purposes, you have to win a novice first and then you progress into open. We also have all edge stakes um, and they're sort of halfway house. So you can run a no- novice dog in an all edge stake. Some all edge stakes have um, conditions. So um some would say you need to have had an award in a novice state to run in an all age. So there can be that little halfway house. And they're a good ground for people that have had an early, say, for example, had a win with a novice dog, but don't really feel it's quite ready for opens yet. So you can run in an all age stake with it. Um, equally, you can run a complete novice dog and, and win an all age stake. Some don't have to be qualified to go into all age. Um, and then open stakes um, are your qualifying stakes for the championship. So we have two sorts of open. We have a one-day open, which could be between 12 and 16 dogs. And as the name implies, it's run on one day. And then we have two-day stakes, which are 24 dogs. Um, and I could explain how they qualify for the championship. To qualify for the championship, you have to get what's called an A qualification or three B qualifications. An A qualification is a win on a two-day open stake, and a B qualification is a win on a one-day open stake or a second in a two-day open stake. Okay. Um, so that's your your route to qualify for the championship, which is held annually. Yeah. So when you're running these trials, the the titles that we see often on pedigrees, there are some unofficial titles and then there are some more official titles. 
could you explain just briefly what does it take to become a field trial champion, which is the official title that would be recognized yeah, by the Kennel Club? Exactly. There is only one title recognized by the Kennel Club, and that is field trial champion. A lot of people that have won a novice stake like to put on their pedigrees field trial winner, or you might see open field trial award winner. So you'll see FTW, OFTAW, and so right. on, uh, or open field trial winner. Um, but as you say, the, the official title is field trial champion. To gain that title, obviously the dogs come up into open stakes, um, usually by winning a novice stake or an all-age stake. Um, and they need three days of wins to qualify for the title of field trial champion. So realistically, that could be a two-day open stake win and a one-day open stake win. It could be two two-day open stake wins or three one-day open stake wins. In addition to those wins, we also need to have um, what's called a drive certificate and a water certificate for the dog. So that's um, a piece of paper that's signed by, for the drive certificate, its dog must have sat or remained steadier to drive in an open stake. Mm -hmm. um, and that's signed by, I think it can be signed by an A and a B panel judge now, but it used to be two A panel judges. So it's a piece of paper to say your dog has sat quietly to drive or remained quiet and steadier to drive. Uh, but it, that must be done at a trial, in an, in an open trial. Uh, the water certificate, all that is, is, um, again, something that's signed to say dog entered water readily and swam. Mm -hmm. um, there's no retrieving element. They just need to know that your dog can swim. And that can be done anywhere, but it has to be done during the winter months before April. Um, and again, that's signed by two panel judges. Mm, so... Yeah, I, and I was. I, we, need, we have to get into a point of clarification. I was confused on about the the show point, uh, which I was told wrongly by someone. But so essentially, you have to have three days of winning and open. So if, if you win two two day stakes, obviously you earn the title. But yeah. you're you're all, you're even a day up. You've you've won above and beyond what what uh, yeah. the minimum requirement. And then a drive certificate in a trial. So if you, yes, if you exclusively run trials then that are walked up, which we'll get into, you would have to go find a trial that's a drive and you don't yes. have to win. You just have to sit steady and get the certificate. Um, exactly. Yeah. The dog has to be judged. Um, so yeah, you do need to get yourself into you have to go find a, a driven trial yes. and get into yeah. it, which is, yeah. but I guess if, if you also have a dog that's just getting into opens, you could go get your drive certificate before you ever win, just so you have it when. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people do that if they're in, have the opportunity of sitting in a drive in a stake. Um, in fact, I did the same. So the first two two day open stake that I won this year finished with a drive, um, and so I was able to get a drive certificate for the dog. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I was told by someone that dogs here had to have a show ring point, which I don't even know what you would do to earn that. I learned from you that that's not true, but there are some people that choose to go and do that. Um, I've had a few dogs that came and, and their paperwork that came to me. Well, Kane had one. Oh, he still came. And Moose as well. Yeah. 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 Um, there's no, I mean, the show and the working sides have, have split so far apart really now, particularly with Labradors. Um, not so much with, with flat coats, but certainly with Labradors. Um that there's no way one of our, you know, one of our working dogs could compete in the show ring. Um, and you do see some showbred dogs um, competing at a level in the working side. Um, but the two, the two 
have really drifted quite significantly apart. So there's no necessity for um, a working, a, a Labrador that's going to get field trial champion. Um, there's no show necessity. There's no confirmation certificate. Unlike other countries, I believe Germany, they do have a, a confirmation. Austria as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they'd have to have a confirmation yeah. standard, which is an interesting point because you... And, th- and that's probably where you pick that up from because certainly when I had moose... Um, it, to be used in Austria or Germany, they want to show they want to show um, assessment. So I had what you get a championship show judge to come and assess the dog, and it's just assessed. Um, it's either good, very good, or excellent. So you just get a, a certificate or a piece of paper and a, a report of the dog's confirmation. What did you score? Good Moose was excellent. Oh, good. No, that's um, as yeah. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. It's, I mean, you see Labradors. When I mentioned that I have British working line Labradors, people's assumption generally is that they're really small. And in America, to me, they're not really small at all. They're very just. I mean, and there's a wide range, but. Uh, in a lot of the American working lines, the dogs have gotten really big. You and I think, they're, tall, yeah, yeah. I think they're getting away from that now. Right. You'll see some really nice American working line bitches that are around 50 pounds, which would be really normal. Right. Um, but you'll also see some dogs that are over 100 pounds, right. which is, yeah. I don't know the kilo, but that's that's hefty. It's a big yeah, dog. Yeah, it'd yeah. um, yeah, be 25 pounds bigger than moose. Right. So it's yeah, a big, large dog. So the confirmation standard is something that is not really there, but again, in America, it's the same. The drift between show dog and working dog is mm. it's a massive, massive yeah. gap between those two. So we don't, we don't see a ton of it. Um, you mentioned sitting steady in a drive. I imagine there are a lot of people listening to this that have no idea what a drive is because in right. America, there might be, two or three driven shoots still okay. around. So two ways, two what t- types of trials I've been to in the UK. One is a walked up and one is driven. There may be more, maybe duck shoot. I don't, I don't know if that's a that count as a drive, um, but explain the difference between those two and, and sort of what the dog work looks like in those two, because it's very different from what yeah. we do. Yeah. So two effectively from two different types of shooting. So a driven shoot, which I'll explain what happens. Um, and then the walked up would be from a rough shoot where you're self beating. So we'll start with a walked up shoot. That's usually walking through a crop um, with the dogs at heel um, all the guns in line. So you're walking, progressing forward as a line. Sometimes you have spaniels working front of the line as well. Um, and you're self yourself beating so the the pressure of you walking or the spaniels in front will will push the birds out in front of you and the guns will shoot them going away from themselves um so that's that's one type of of trial that we have here and it's more common probably from from where we live midlands upwards further up the country and certainly as you go into scotland virtually all of their trials are, are walked up like that down south, um, a lot the trials are a lot more driven. So, driven trial is is on a, a driven shoot day is where the guns are all stood out in a field on pegs. So they're all pegged out. You've got say, for example, ten guns on a shoot day, um, and the birds are are beaten out of a wood. So you'd have a, a wood with maybe with a pen in or in woodland or, or crops, for example, maize, tall maize crops, the beaters will work through that crop, pushing the birds out um, over the tops of the guns, the guns stand still and shoot the birds. 
Um, and in that respect, the dogs are then positioned either in the gun line or somewhere behind the gun line sitting in a, in a line. Yeah, so a beater is we would, I guess in America, it would be like a, a flusher, you know, somebody. Yeah, somebody with a spaniel, usually with a dog. You have beaters without dogs, but beaters with dogs are ideal because the spaniels are working, as I say, in the woodland, through the bramble or through the maize crop or cover crop, um, just hunting up and finding the birds. And pushing um, the birds really toward pushing the, the birds the out towards the gut exactly that yeah. yeah and and on a drive um there's an amount of time that elapses where the beaters are working and then the ones i've been to there's like an air horn or something that distinguishes yeah. hey the, the beaters have stopped and i guess at that point the guns will rotate to a new peg sometimes so what will happen is the drive on a normal shoot day you're right the, the guns peg out and they'll stand there there can be quite a bit of time before you know, sometimes the birds are beaten from quite a long way, so there can be a lot of standing around doing nothing where the dogs have to remain quiet and steady while nothing happens. Birds start coming over the guns, guns shoot, and as you said, when when the keeper says that's the end of the drive, there's either a horn or a whistle, signifies the end of the drive, and the guns will stop shooting, um, unload and close their guns, and then that's the point where the pickers up will then come in and, and pick the birds, let the guns pick their own. If, if some of the guns might have their own dogs on the pegs, so they'll they'll pick the birds they want to pick around their pegs. And then the pickers up will come in and work and pick the live birds and then pick the dead, sweep up the dead birds. And we were talking earlier. Um, so, and I didn't, I didn't know this. It's obviously different at a trial, but when you're picking up, when you're just, you, you call it the pickers up. So that's, what we would just consider going out working your dog. It's probably the, I would say around here, the most common way you could work a dog yeah. would be picking up. Yeah. So you're not actually shooting typically. No, 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 no. You're just handling a dog on a shoot. Yeah. Um, and you're not really running a lot of retrieves while the shooting is going on. None at all, unless they're alive, unless you have a runner. So you're there to work. So on the shoot day, you've got the, the beaters with their spaniels who are there to produce the birds. Um, for the guns and then the pickers up are there to work to to collect all the birds um, to put the birds in the bag so no very bad etiquette to be picking dead birds during a drive so the dogs will sit there patiently obviously any live or wounded birds um, that come down they need to be gathered quickly for humane reasons so they will be sent for during the drive by the pickers up um, or picked afterwards if they've gone into woodland or something um, but the picking up starts once the drive's finished because otherwise it would be dangerous and distracting for the guns. Mm -hmm. Which is, it makes a lot of sense. It was mind blowing to me the first time I learned that you guys actually were getting paid. I mean, it's a, it's work You're the, the estate or the, the exactly, owners yeah. of the shoot. Yeah. But um, I guess that makes sense because shooting over here, you're paying to shoot and you're paying per bird. Exactly. So every bird that's picked and put in the bag, is, is money. So typically, I mean, pickers up aren't paid an awful lot, but it's usually the price of a bird. Um, so if you only pick one bird, you've sort of paid for yourself. Mm. Um, but you're there, yes, to, to, to get all the birds which have been shot. Which is, it's a, that's such a foreign, uh, no pun intended, foreign concept for, for us to consider in America, just that you would be paid, you know, to, to go work your dog. I mean, obviously it's not, you're not going to make a living doing it, but you can, it's a neat idea that you're really helping the gamekeeper and the estate uh, do their job better by gathering these birds because yeah, that's how they're making money. Yeah, you are paid to do a job there. So. Yeah. Um, 
what is sweeping? Sweeping is where, for example, a load of birds might have fallen into a woodland area. Um, and so you, as a picker-up, you might be stationed in that wood or just outside it. You've seen a load of birds go in there at the end of the drive. You'd loose off your dogs. You might have a, a pack of three, four dogs with you. And you'd just let them go into that wood and, and sweep the ground, hunt, hunt around and just find birds and bring them back to you. So they're just hoovering. They're just going in, raking around, hoovering wild hunting yeah just going um, wild just having a great and it's a fantastic way to for young dogs to learn their craft you know that's how they're going to learn to find birds so you with a young dog um when you first start doing that you probably take it out with an older dog and at first of all you just run around chasing the older dog thinking it's having a nice time and then when it finds its first bird it says oh okay this is this is what this is about so they start to learn to be a bit more independent and run around and start finding their own birds. So it's, it's, it's learning their craft for the future. Mm. I want to get into that a little bit, but I want to talk about a little bit more of picking up. How important is picking up for the field trialer in the UK? Um, what's the, oh, it's not necessarily the same if you're not able to run retrieves during the drive. You're sweeping, that's a little different, but you mentioned game finding ability. How important is it for people in your opinion, to pick up before they start running a dog. And it's essential that dogs, I mean, we sign a declaration before we go into a field trial to say that the dogs picked hmm. every sort of game, um, both dead and wounded. So the only way you can do, well, not the only way you could do that, but the primary way that you can do that is to by getting on a shoot and going and, and picking up and letting the dogs learn their craft. So it's really, really important for people to get picking up experience with their dogs. Mm -hmm. You can have the best trained dog in the world on dummies, but they, they have to learn game, you know, how to treat game. There's something, um, and it's probably a good transition there, but there's something that was very attractive to me early on about the dogs here and the dog sports here was the practicality. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, and that, that's exactly, I mean, what you just explained is it, I mean, it's necessary, uh, and part of keeping the tradition of shooting sports here is having the dogs and the way that you guys trial here is still so very connected to the way that the dogs are used in a practical manner, right? Whereas it is, yeah, it hasn't drifted so far apart as it has in the United States. Um, and it's essential that we do keep that connection. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to see now. You sometimes hear people coming in and they've got the dog and they say, I want to do field trials, but it shouldn't be that way. It should be, I've got a working gun dog. I'm going to shoot, you know, the dog's progressing and, and it, that should be the route into then competitive environment, not the other way around, really. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So in your trials, and this is something that we, we could spend a long time on, but it's worth just notice, noting a few of them. What would be uh, considered an eliminating fault? You mentioned that your first dog had several eliminating faults that might prevent uh, that one from trialing. And then your, your novice dog was, was a bit much uh, until you got proved. What, what would be some things if you're a judge and you are an A panel judge, which we haven't really gotten into that, but you guys have kind of levels of judging, which is I've found uh, the requirements are strenuous i mean it's not easy to become an eight panel judge not anyone can just sign up and say oh i'll be an eight panel judge um so there's a lot of experience that comes with that um 
as an A-panel judge, what are some things that can happen in a trial that you would say that's an eliminating fault that will immediately result in a dog being put out of the trial? We have a list of eliminating faults in the in the J-regs and also major faults, which again, the dog can be put out for. Um, ones I've touched on are noise, so any, any form of giving tongue, noise, whining, barking, um, that would be in, in, instant uh, disqualification. Running in, so unsteadiness, the dog going before it's sent yeah we call that breaking right yeah um that again that that unfortunately you're gone so the dog has to be completely steady um chasing game swapping swapping retrieves so picking one and then going swapping for another um failure to enter water i mean there's a whole there's a whole list in the j-regs of these what about blinking yeah that would be amazing Is is it a major or eliminating I don't remember. As in? Uh, Standing over a bird. Yeah, standing. Well, that would, standing over a bird is not, it's not written down in the J-Regs as either, um, but that would come under sloppy retrieving or, so it would would be, it was a major fault. It would be a fault. Yeah, that's one I was unaware of. I saw it in a, um, I won't name who it was, but there was a dog in in an IGL video. I was pulling for the dog and I think it ended up with a certificate of merit maybe, but it was, probably set to win it was run in scotland and the, and the last retrieve the dog stood over it was hovered over the bird really it picked it up and put it back down and looked at another bird and then picked it back up oh, and brought okay. it back and, and that, that was, was that yeah. was it it was done that would be yeah, yeah eliminated it was, unfortunately yeah. it was a bad it was a bad deal mm. but that's not something that you see people really put a lot of focus on uh in the u.s but if it's a wounded bird it's an incredibly important Thing. I mean, if a dog sets that bird down and it takes off, that could be it. Yeah, again, and that comes under sloppy delivery and you know, sloppy retrieval. So um, a dog that repositioned a bird several times on the way back, you know, the judge will be looking at that. It's not ideal because, as you say, if it's a wounded bird, it's got the chance to get away. Um, yeah, I love that. Um, so running in, making noise, sloppy retrieves. Um, out of control. Right. Without right. merit, all these all these things are taken into consideration. What are some um, things that judges are looking for? Obviously they're straightforward retrieving. What are some things that you would say, um, we we just talked about this as I was at a trial yesterday, things that give you credit. So you, you, or just walk us through how your retrieves are scored in a trial. And then maybe what would bump up a score? Credit points are natural ability, marking, uh, nose. So credit needs to be given for dogs that mark well. Um, and quite often is, isn't um, because sometimes you, a dog that marks really well can get to the fall of a runner before it has a chance to take off. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's not taken into account. Um, so good marking, good nose, um, hunting, drive style, speed, you know, all these are things that are looked at. Nice, fast dog that go, gets out there quickly and directly to the fall, makes a good job of the fall and is quick on the way back and delivers tenderly to hand those are all those are all credit points um things that can earn you a little bit of extra credit are taking a runner so so taking a runner off the fall tracking it for example a bird that's you know the dog's gone to directly it's found the fall gets there the bird's not there and it starts to take what we call take a line so it's nose to the ground and it's following a line away from the where the bird's fallen uh, dogs that do that that's going to that's going to give you some nice credit. Um, you can be credited for an eye, what's called an eye wipe, where you go behind another dog. So if a, if one dog's been been to an area, 
failed to locate a bird, might send another dog that's also been to the area, done a good job at the area, but failed to locate the bird. Third dog comes in, um, stays in the area, hunts and hunts, and then picks the bird. Um, we'd say that that dog's performed an eye wipe over the other two dogs, um, and that would be given some credit for, for doing that if it's a genuine eye wipe. If the other dogs hadn't actually got to the area, um, really you've just gone behind those two dogs, and it's some people call it a technical eye wipe. So it's you've gone behind those two dogs, but the first two dogs never even got there. So And those dogs, the first two in this situation, are still going to be eliminated from the trial. They're Absolutely, they're yeah. they're done because they but they're not necessarily done because they got eye wiped. They're really done because they failed to make the area. They've, well, the, in the first in the first instance, the ones that made the area um, failed to find game and were eye wiped. In the second, exactly that. In the second instance, the ones that failed to make the area could be put out. So if the bird's not found, for example, um, and two dogs failed to make the area, the judges would put those two dogs out because they didn't get to the four, didn't make the area. Yeah. That's something that was difficult for me to understand at first, but when you see it, it makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk about those things for just a second. You guys put a lot of focus on the area. Uh, in America, they call it the area of the fall. Yeah. And it's the same in especially like um, AKC master test. We were talking about those. Like if you have a dog that makes an area and leaves and returns to an old fall area, you're out. That's an eliminating fault for sure. Right. Um, but for you guys, the area is huge. Uh, you, you hear it a lot. And you see judges, you know, the dog, they put their stick up and this is what I've learned is the signal of Wagging he's the in the area, in, right? Yeah. And so how do you define that um, area of the fall? How, how and I'm sure it varies based on cover, um, but how would you define the area? And then what are you looking to see in a dog? Because you have runners, you mentioned runners. So for us in America, that would be a crippled bird. Yeah. So that's a bird that hit the ground and is no longer where it hit the ground. And mm -hmm. so there's yeah. extra credit given to a dog that sorts that out, uh, which you would, that's something that we don't really get to evaluate much. And we'll, we'll kind of go into that. But the importance of the area, what are you looking for in the area? And then how are you judging dogs that never make the area, but still pick the bird? So the area, obviously, for a marked retrieve, you've hopefully marked it, the dog's marked it, the judge's marked it. So you've got, a, you know, you've got a very strong visual indication of it's fallen near that tree, for example. Um, so you're looking for a dog that goes directly there um, and hunts around and doesn't start wildly taking in loads of ground. So um, you really want the dog to what we call hold an area, which is to stay within a sensible hunting distance. And, and you you dictate that with your training. So you, you set up, okay, you think, well, how, what, what's a sensible distance? You don't want it taking in the whole county. Mm -hmm. You want the dog to methodically cover the ground because it was a little partridge tucked into some long grass. You know, if the dog's whizzing around at 100 miles an hour, taking in vast expanses of ground, chances are it's not going to find it. It's just running and it's looking quite stylish, but it's not going to find it. You want a dog that can just drop its pace. So ideally for me, I'd want a dog fast out to the area. So a dog quickly and efficiently to the area. So that's your sixth gear. Stopping it in the area, for example, if it was a blind retrieve and then telling it to hunt there. And then I want it to drop its gears. I want it down then in, in gear one or two. I want it going in a slow enough pace that its nose is going to work. So it's still hunting stylishly, but it's dropped its speed and pace right down. Mm. Um, and you mentioned cover. Yeah. Different sorts of cover. You could have a sugar beet field. You could have long grass, you could have a wood. Um, so that just, that just depends. Yeah. But um, you mentioned something when we were talking um, 
earlier, and, and it's worth noting here when it, when you're talking about the area and not taking in a lot of ground. So we would call that hunting a, a big space, not hunting too big. Um, we ran a little setup earlier. Bray did a great job on the the go bird, and he was on the correct side of the wind, and he he had a not too long of a hunt for the cover, but he hunted for a bit and you did not handle him because we're training. But you mentioned in a trial, you would have stopped him as soon as he was on the correct side of the wind, right before he passed the bird. And I mentioned in America, you're penalized for, for handling on a mark in in an American test though, in that scenario, and it would probably be the same for your working test. You are literally just evaluating the dog's marking ability, but what, is never going to happen as another bird inadvertently flushed because these aren't live birds. So mm-hmm. for you guys, you see a lot of quick handling on marked retrieves. Even I do um, over a dog that might be about to blow past a mark or yeah. um, what's the importance of that? Why is it in, in, why is it in trials? Okay. To handle on marks. Like what are you looking for? What we're looking for is to keep. So again, talking about the area, keeping things quite tight because of the volume of game we're working in, which is probably very different to what, you, what you've got. You know, we have a lot of game on these grounds. So if the dog's gone to the fall um, and is holding sensibly in that area, that's fine. But if the dog drifts out, it can start disturbing vast volumes of live game. So you get into a situation where it's getting into a load of birds and disturbing the ground. It's what's called disturbing ground, which we don't want because that's ground that we're going to probably be walking over later and shooting again. So you don't want a dog raking around, putting birds up left, right and centre everywhere. Um, so that's that's the difference. So you'd be careful to, to manage that, really. Yeah. Um, Again, super practical. Although, and even still, I mean, if you have a, um, a nice mark off the front of a line, even a long mark, and the dog just runs out and bang, puts mm-hmm. his nose on it, that's a lot of credit. I mean, that I've, yeah. I've seen that yeah. in a trial, and the judges love to see yeah. it when you don't have yeah, to. Yeah, straight out it. and back. I mean, that's what you that's what you want ideally. Yeah. But also, you're looking at the terrain that retrieve you alluded to earlier. Um, where the dog's just about to do it, go out of sight into a very, very thick cover, um, that could be a, you know, a danger for the handler because once your dog's gone in there, you're sort of a bit hit and hope. So right. in a trial, you'd be thinking, I don't really want the dog to go way deep into that cover mm. and end up lost, and then I've got to do a recovery. So you might put a judicious stop in and just just hold it you know, right where the fall is and not take the chance in training. Um, I'll often take chances I wouldn't take in in a trial or a competition because I want to see if the dog can recover itself and I want to know what the dog can do in a certain situation. And if I can teach a dog to recover itself on marks out of sight, then I'm building a better dog for the future. And then I know I've got a dog I can trust when I take into a competition. Hmm. So practical, which is great. Um, Obviously, you, you do have the working test here now exclusively on dummies yeah um and i've seen those and those are i mean they're very similar to some of the hunt test setups you see um and something that i would love to start in america is a a style of working test that resembles what my favorite part about them is the point system that you use so if you could explain this the starting with 20 points the setups that you guys do and then just a little bit of the difference in the working tests and the trials yeah. here in the UK. So we have, obviously, we have the shooting season, which is when our trials and shoot live game shooting occurs. And that's 
well, 12th of August is when grouse shooting starts, but 1st of September is partridge and then 1st of October is pheasant. So we've got that running through to the end of January and then that's the end of the shoot season. So then we have the off season, which is springtime onwards through the summer. It's typically when we have our working tests. And as you say, they're done on dummies. And they're, well, working test is supposed to be a test of where your training is at. So they were set up originally not to be a, an end in themselves, but to be a means to an end. So they were to test how your training was going throughout the summer before you took your dog into the shooting field. They've probably progressed beyond that now to become almost a sport in their own right. So they're great fun, go to working test. There are working tests on most weekends um, throughout the country. Um, and they're typically a series, of, as you've said, of four to five tests, depending on how many dogs are entered on the day and how many judges you've got. But um, four or five stations of tests, and they would comprise um, a test of um, variations of marks and blinds. And depending on the train, you might have water, you might have fences, you might have woodland, depending on where the test is set. But each test is typically out of uh, 20 points, as you said. So you, you start with a maximum of 20 points. And obviously, if your dog performs fairly perfectly, you're going to hold on to those points. Um, otherwise, you know, you lose points um, for various elements, basically, of the test. So if you're running a test that's, let's just say, a double marked retrieve. Yeah. And you have to handle the dog on the mark. Are they going to deduct like a point? So, yeah, it's really interesting because people think, oh, gosh, if I handle on a mark, I'm going to get less points, um, which, yeah, the perfect dog's going to run straight to the mark, put its nose down, hunt, hunt and pick and, and bring it straight back. That's a, that's your ideal 20. Um, but if your dog slightly overshot it and you have to just put a whistle on and, and put it forward onto it, yeah, you might you might lose a point or so, but it's far better to do what I'd call damage limitation and gain 18 points than to leave that dog and then let it rake around forever. Um, and then Those you've got, you just, you're hemorrhaging, you know, the dog's gone completely out of air and eventually you still have to get the dog back and then you try and handle it and it's all gone terrible. And then you yeah. end up with seven points or 12 points. So um, people that sometimes come into it say, oh, you know, I'm going to lose points for handling on a mark, but sometimes you're going to lose a lot less points if mm. you handle than if you don't handle. Because yeah. um, judges don't want to see, the, the judges that the shooting field judges, they don't want to see a dog running around here, there and everywhere. Yeah. And that's not going to get you maximum points at all. So, And if you're running in a test, the eliminating faults we mentioned earlier are going to earn you a zero on that one? Um, there are no eliminating faults in working tests. So there are major faults. So you you can get a zero on a test, but you're not eliminated from the rest of the oh, competition. So you can keep going. So you could get zero on test one. You could go to test two and get 20. You could go to test three and get 18. And you could go to test four and get 15. So you haven't been eliminated from the day, unlike in a field trial, where as soon as your dog had that fault, you, you that would be end of competition for you. Right, so you can keep um, going. So you which can is carry on and do the tests. You won't feature in the awards with a zero. Um, That's a very interesting point too. I didn't know that until you mentioned it the other day. So you can't earn one of the awards if you've had a no, zero. In a working test, if you've got a zero, if you've had a failure on one of the tests, you can't be in the awards. Mm. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I love watching you guys' working tests. I think they're a great evaluation. I do think that what will probably happen is the it, it will become more of an end than a means. 
and that's where you start to see the the tomfoolery. You know, that's where the the gap between uh, field trials and working tests starts to, and, and it becomes less practical because I think people naturally want to continue to make progress. And yeah. as the dogs get better at this sort of style of testing, there's only so much you can do to make it more difficult. You're going to distance and factors yeah, really. Exactly and, that, yeah. and, and the amount of retrieves or, you know, complication of the setup. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that you'll see that here as much as you do in the U S because in the U S and obviously in the field trial world, it is a, a, a sport in and of itself, completely yeah. separate yeah. from duck hunting. Um, and they all accept that. And it's, it's great if you know that's what it is, right? If you if you're going into it with that expectation, but I, I didn't know that it was set up for a way to evaluate your training going into the season. That's um that's helpful. I see a lot, I try not to get too much in the weeds, but I see a lot online of people complaining about just because your dog's good at a working test and hasn't picked up doesn't mean you're ready for trials. You know, you you need to you need to be on yeah, and working and, tests are going to test it's the technical training of your dog, isn't it? So is it is it steady? Is it quiet is it can it handle it on dummies um can you send it left right back does it stop um can it mark well you know all of those skills that trained a fully trained dog would have but it is no way going to give you that preparation for going on to game so um it's a dog that's operating at a, a good level in in open working tests is you know may have the technical aptitude to be to handle fine going into a trial but it still needs as we said to go and get all that game experience so to learn how to pick a runner you know a working test is never going to to yeah. do that for you right which there's i was thinking about other than actual hunting experience there's just not a lot of opportunity to to pick runners um in the in the usa you know right and and having been over here and seen so many trials one of my favorite things I'll, I'll never say it out loud but it happened it actually happened at the end of the season last year there was a very difficult bird my friend sent his dog the dog uh i guess it wouldn't be a technical eye because the dog didn't actually make the area right. but the, the area was difficult to get to and then i was like i'll get it so i picked the bird with my dog he got the retrieve and in my mind, I was like, yes, I wipe, you know, and we, we don't have a lot of opportunity yeah. for that kind of thing. And if I had said I wipe out loud, they would have wondered what in the world I was talking about. But, you know, I was like, that's, that's, it's a, it's a cool thing when the, you have a dog that's able to get there after yeah. someone that couldn't. Um, I want to talk about, without going too, too long, uh, I want to talk about Bray only because I, I think that's the most recent example. So I'd like to like use Bray as a discussion on your timeline of training, because you guys do things a little differently here. Um, not, not necessarily so much differently, but the, the timing of how you guys raise your dogs and, and particularly you, um, what your expectations are at particular stages of maturity for the dog. I think Bray is a great example, although he's probably an exceptional example because of what he's done already in trials. So that part aside, from a pup, what's your like timeline, if you broke it down into chapters or um, stages, you know, what are you doing with an eight to 16 week old puppy? And then at what stage are you changing that and making things more formal? Or is that a way that you work at all? What What's the timeline you have with, with a, a young dog that you're hoping will be good on game and you're hoping will be a field trial prospect? I think because all dogs are so different. I mean, obviously the dogs I have, have got probably similar breeding in them. So um, they're not so different as me picking random dogs. Um, but 
you know, every as you know, every dog's different. So you, it's very hard to say, all right, this is the fixed timeline from this many weeks to this many weeks. And I think we're a lot um, less formal in the UK than you are in the States. You kind of, a lot of you guys have the program and you follow this very sort of, not rigid, but very structured program of you do this element, this element, and this element. Um, I think we're probably a little bit more, I'm going to say organic here rather than lax, but we're a little bit more sort of, we do a bit of this, we do a bit of that. Um, having said that, with my young dogs, um, I'll do basic sort of manners and obedience early on. So I'll get that sort of um, learning to manage themselves. All my young dogs start their lives in the house. Um, they don't go out into the kennel until they're about eight months or so. So they're they're used to being in and around the house, um, just basic sitting, recalling, all those little manner manners and man, managing themselves, as it were. Um, and the other thing I sort of said is, um, you know, someone commented one of my youngsters is not as far on as Bray was at this age, and and I, my reply was, well, they they were born at different times of year as well, and that can have a massive effect. So if one's born in January you know, he's not going to get the input now um, because I'm busy trialing. I'm not got really in time for training. So it sort of depends. You tend to do more of your training in the spring, summer months. So that can have a big effect. Um, and yes, you wanted to use Brian as an example, but I don't think he is a very good example in terms of he has been exceptional um, and come on far quicker than than dogs that I've had before in my usual sweet spot for, for making up a champion is probably three to five years. Um, and obviously he's just, he's just kind of gone we can, crazy. We can pause year. there to, to, to talk about it before we go further. Cause he is the except. I mean, I think probably not so much the first year. He probably just thought he was really nice going on really nicely the first year um, because you would send messages and updates about how well he was doing, but it didn't seem like you thought he was going to do what he's done now. So we talked about or how to earn your title. Uh, Bray, this year, I think Laura's hope was to win out of novice. So win a novice, meaning she could run opens with Bray and go into next year, maybe trying to win some of those opens. So it didn't go that way. <laughs> no, I mean, secretly, I hoped he, hoped he would place an open. So I wanted to try and get him out of novice early on. I felt he was capable. Um, certainly throughout the summer, he was looking like a very nice dog indeed. Um, so yeah, it's, but you know, you need, it, as, as you know, field trials are hugely oversubscribed in this country. So just to get the runs, um, and get him in, into novice trials, I thought, oh my goodness, what, you know, what if we don't do that? But luckily I got him in his first run on the 4th of September and he, he won that straight away. So that was, that was us then into opens, which was good. Yeah. So right into opens, probably. I mean, I'm sure you did hope to place, but you probably didn't have a ton of you. You, I know you, you don't had, know with a young dog, right? Right. You, you really don't know, and and obviously you're at a stage where if you've had one win, you think, well, was that was that a lucky win? Was that? I know, I knew he looked nice, and people said to me he was looking nice, but until you start running them, um, and obviously as a two year old, they are young, young, inexperienced dogs. You don't kind of quite know how they're going to react. And, yeah. So Bray yeah. turned two in July. Yeah. Um, and you ran him, you had one open that your words were, you weren't quite on your A game. Uh, <laughs> you, you didn't feel very well, but then the next you ran him in a two day, the first one that he won was where, uh, that was fairly likely to hear Neville, Neville Holt. Okay. Um, Leicestershire. All walked up. 
Uh, no, mixture of walked up and mini drives. Go ahead and drive at the end. So you got your drive certificate. Yeah. So you won that two-day stake, which qualified you for this year's championship. Yeah. Um, which is being held where? Up in Scotland. Yeah, which will be very different terrain. I'm yeah. driving there today. Yeah. So yeah. very different yeah, terrain. Moreland D, sort of Bracken and um, Moreland type yeah. terrain. Moreland, uh, which is, we would call that like hill country. Yeah, yeah hilly, grassy hills. sort of grassy, yeah. Yeah, so obviously you had a strategy play to go put your name in and try. You, you keep saying oversubscribed. So for those in America, you can't just sign up and run a trial here. No. You're going to have to be a member of a club. That's too complicated for us to really get into and, and won't impact anyone there. But uh, your average two-day stake of 24 dogs, how many dogs are, are in, in England and in the northern parts of England, southern Scotland, how many dogs are signing up to try to run in that trial? Um, typically around 100. Yeah. yeah. So 100 dogs-ish. I know yesterday I went and Charlotte said she had 114 signed right. up for, for that yeah. two-day. Yeah. Only 24 getting in. So yeah. you're not ever really guaranteed to get to no, run your dog. No. If you get a handful of runs, you, you know, you're happy. So you got you you got two runs up strategically, you said, on Moreland. So up on the terrain where yeah. the championship's going to be. So obviously you wanted to go see how he see yeah, how he so drives. I felt we'd had a couple of runs down here and um, I thought I really need, now I knew I was running and going to be running in the championship, but I felt I wanted to get him on that sort of terrain. Um, so I opted to, to travel up north rather than stay down here for a run um, and take him up there and get some experience on that, that sort of terrain. So you went and ran, you went and ran a two day up there and he won that one as well. Yeah, so he won that. Um, and that made him up to field trial champion. Um, and then I stayed up there because I'd, I'd driven up there with the thought of doing these two trials and having a day's rest in between. Um, and I made him up at that at first one of those two. Um, but my strategy, and then I felt, well, I could come home, but I didn't want to let the people down who were running the next trial. And also my strategy had been to go and get some more experience on this very young dog. Um, so I said, no, I will step here and do the other trial. And, and then he won that, he won that one as well, <laughs> so, which was great. So, Is he your youngest field trial champion? Yeah. yeah and he's yeah. the eighth? That's correct. Eighth champion. Yeah. And they've all been in some ways bred by you or your breeding. So obviously um, he wasn't bred by you, but he's a moose pup. Um, well, Jane Fairclough bred my first two. So the two Job's Hill ones mm -hmm. were bred by Jane. And then all the subsequent ones apart from him were being bred by myself. And then he was by Moose, who was obviously bred by me. So before he, Moose went out to America, yeah. um, I wanted a pup from back from him. So that, that's that's Bray. And is he your, he's your youngest champion? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, you, you just don't see. I mean, I know in America we talked about, and that's what I'd like to get back to, but we talked about the, the age and the program. And when we started Cornerstone, there was a lot of frustration for people because they wanted us to put at what age you should be where. And that's a very American way of thinking. Yeah. Like I, 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 my dog's six months old. What should we be doing? Yeah, and I think that's even in this country, it's still the same. You know, yeah. they're sort of saying, what, "What are you doing with your dog that's eight months old?" And um, we have you a kind lot of, of want questions. to know that you're you're reaching your standard, or you're not behind yeah. the drag curve. Or yeah, we get those questions a lot, and we've and even in the fifty-two plus program, we were very intentional to go week by week, but not age of the dog. Yeah, because you could yeah. technically start it at any point. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously there's puppy work, yeah. right, and there's things to do, but there's also like, hey, I'm, I'm, 
I'm at the end of week 15, but we're not succeeding at this. So what do we do now? Well, you just stay back. Don't, don't, yeah, don't, (laughs) don't keep going because everyone gets kind of, this is the timeline. We had a lot of people that were, you know, I want a timeline. I want time. I was like, no, I can give you a chart of the flow. I think that's the problem with a weekly program because then, you know, like you say, you might be stuck and have a real problem with deliveries. And for me, I'd then want to spend three weeks on delivering yeah, just and get that it. right because there's no point in progressing yeah. or steadiness or whatever it is you're working on. There's no point in pushing on until yeah. you've got some of those core foundation elements. So right. the way we tried to mitigate that was having a like a progress checkpoint. Yeah. It's like, hey, yeah. before you go on, you should be here. If you're not mm-hmm. here, don't move on. Yet I mean, because- what I try and say to clients, it's stage, not age. Mm-hmm. So what stage is your dog at, not what age is your dog at? So at what point, uh, what stage, we won't attach an age to it, um, but at what stage are you saying, okay, I've got my manners and management. I've got the basic little obedience around here. Mm-hmm. We're going to push it out in the field um, and specifically work on things like steadying a dog, um, stopping on the whistle and taking directional casting. Right. Okay. So again, that really, let's take the steadiness thing you have to judge the dog in front of you. So some dogs that are naturally tending to be a bit more steady, they're the dogs I wouldn't try and steady. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones, so I like to see a dog that will be key, early on. I just want the dogs really keen, run, running out, fetching things, bringing them back. And I don't care about delivery or anything. I just want them to have energy and enthusiasm, go and get that, come back. Um, and then you'll start to mold it. So then you'll, you'll judge, okay, well now, can we make this dog wait? You know, can we hold them and just get some steadiness so they get the reward of the retrieve if they stand there and look at it? Um, you might then decide, okay, I've had enough of the dog running back and throwing the dummy in itself at me. Um, I've I've got that nice recall. To me, the recall part's really important. Okay, now I'm going to shape a delivery. So then I'll go, okay, well, I'm going to shape the delivery indoors. Um, so I'm going to stop all of that running around in the field outside. I'm going to come indoors and just work on some delivery. So I've got that back part molded and then take it back out. Once the dog can deliver properly in the kitchen or in the house, I'll then take that back out to the field. Do you think that um, forcing the delivery issues too early can have a negative impact on the recall? I think people that try and formalise delivery may end up putting some pressure on the dog because they make it not pleasant for the dog to come back. So, yeah, I'd rather see that recall. Clients that I see come here um, often, you know, retrieve. All dogs, all, well, all dogs, all retrievers will want to run out and chase something because right. that's the prey drive. But the the bringing it back, the most problems that you see are on that return element. So either they're showboating, running around with it, hunting on, all sorts of issues are usually on the return part of the retreat. They don't have much problem running out and going to the dummy. But coming back, they might, as I say, hunt on with it in their mouth. They might swap. They might have a slow return. They might run a ring around you when they get there. You know, there's all sorts of, usually you see those those problems. So, um, yeah, I'm careful with dogs, mouths and delivery because, you know, again, going back to puppies, I don't, you know, if they're six months old and they're teething, I'm not going to be doing any retrieving with it. If they want to pick up a sock in the house, that's fine, but I wouldn't be forcing dogs to run out and pick dummies when they've got sore teeth. Um, and I don't formalise that delivery, as you say, because I don't want to have a slow return 
So I'd rather dog came back fast and had a rubbish delivery early on. And then we go, okay, now we've, we've got that speedy recall. Dog wants to come back to me. It's full of joy. Now let's just mold that delivery part. Well, you're going to take yeah. the, you're going to take the delivery part and separate it yeah. from the recall. Yeah. So seat, everything for me combine. is about chunking is about breaking down. All my training is break down into small elements. So that simple retrieve of run out, fetch dummy and come back. And if you look at that, there's probably about six parts to it eventually, because mm-hmm. you've got the steadiness, you've got the dogs locking on a marking, you've got the straight line run out there, you've got the hunt, you've got the pickup, you've got the return, you've got the delivery and so on. So you've got all these separate elements and any point of those elements can go wrong. Yeah. And so if, if it is going wrong and you have, you have a client here and they present an issue, what I've always tried to do is say, okay, let's take all the rest of the elements out. Yeah, exactly that. So if, if we've got um, problems with recall and delivery, we take the outrun out because that's usually the part that's fizzed the dog up and yeah. put too much adrenaline in. So we'll actually start with the dog out remotely. We'll do some recall work or that, and then we'll start bringing the dummy back in, but we'll recall the dog onto the dummy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah. just breaking that down. That's a great one. And that's something that's been uh, fun to, to help people with because it fixes the issue usually really quickly when they're, they don't understand what's getting the dog all jacked up is the running out mm-hmm. or the marking watching something yeah, fall. Exactly. And then the dog's, so got such a high energy level it's yeah. having trouble containing yeah. you, know, you know doing what it's supposed to do after that so i just say remove that all together go back and just do if you've already worked on hold just load the dog like you did earlier with, with bray you know load the dog walk back recall the dog exactly. you know yeah. take the element yeah. out that usually is a quick way to fix a lot of that a lot of those things um at what stage are you introducing your dogs to game how where do you, what do you want the dog doing at that point before you're comfortable with a dog saying hey i think no, obviously there's no point in taking a dog into the field on game if you've got major problems with things like delivery or right. recall or anything like that so you want to make sure the dog's well trained and not got any issues particularly on delivery and carrying things because if it has on dummies then it's only going to be worse on game or um, and it's going to be more arousing for the dog potentially um it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I've certainly uh, with the young pup, okay, you know, occasionally you, you might put a, find a partridge or something and put it out and just see if it'll pick it out, pick it up out of curiosity. But it's not something I do loads of. I know in the, in America that um, they often want to get their dogs birdie, is it? And they like yeah. really want to get the dog birdie. We we don't really do that here, so it's it's kind of the last stage for us. So we would do all our training, get the dog well rounded and trained. And then introduce cold game, and then a bit of warm game, yeah. and so on. Really, it's a stark contrast. One of it's one of many stark yeah. contrasts. But yeah. the early on puppyhood, I have a lot of people that come and they want to pick their puppies up, and they bring bird wings, yeah. you yeah. know, and they want to see which dog chases it. Yeah, I understand where their thought process is coming from, but I mean, typically with a Labrador, they're gonna once they learn what they're supposed to do, they're gonna love birds. I mean, and it's. Yeah, it's going to be really rare that they're not going to pick something up. Yeah, yeah. and once they learn that the thing that is really smelly out there is the thing they're supposed to pick mm-hmm. up, it's it's game on. It's pretty easy. Yeah. I wait most mm-hmm. of the time because I have found with some dogs you create more mouth issues if you do. Birds yeah, really if you early. haven't exactly with a young, that's what I'm saying. I'd want to be confident in the dog's mouth on a dummy and do it that way first. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's very similar. So. Um, handling stopping and casting um obviously 
I don't, I don't know that you do a lot of like, do you do pattern blinds here at all? Do you do a lot of um, delayed memories or um, what sort of drills are you using for those? Cause I do think there's some good overlap. You've sent me some drills that you work on and they're very similar to some yeah, of the stuff we, we do. We use sort of a grid system. So we sort of peg out a, like a square and have, you know, run the dog up the side of a square, stop it, cast it right. That sort of thing. So similar to what you'd have T drill, isn't mm-hmm. it? So we do similar sort of yard handling exercises. Yeah. Um, when the dogs are novice. Um, the youngster, I mean, my young pup's coming up now. He's nearly 10 months old now, and um, he's not done um, anything much in the way of handling yet. Um, he can run out for memory, what are called memory blinds. Um, he's got to stop. With, I do tend to put the stop whistling quite early. I tend to start them off with that really early um, so that they're responsive on the stop. So he will stop. Um, and then I'll go on to static casting. So I'll just sit him up and start doing static lefts and rights with him. But we're not at the stage where any of that would be joined up yet. Right. Again, same thing. You're you're simplifying the elements out. So yeah. I'm teaching yeah. I'm yeah. teaching lefts and rights on their yeah. own. I'm teaching to going out a straight line on its yeah. own. Are you using um, memories mostly to teach? Straight yeah, I do lines? what I call trailing memory blind. Mm-hmm. So I'd put walk out, put a dummy out with the dog, come back, turn around, spin around, send him back for it. And then I'd do a sort of triangle or box version of that where you'd send from a different angle. So mm-hmm. starting to get that memory element. We'd do things with visual dummies. So you could do that with a white dummy so the dog can see the dummy. Mm-hmm. So um, just different things to support the dog. So when you're starting to teach blinds, it's all about cues. Um, so you're building confidence in your setup. How do you support that? Will you support that by using a great big white dummy or sending the dog to a traffic cone or or sending the dog down a track which it knows and so yeah. on? So different ways of supporting that that blind setup. We have a lot of that in Cornerstone that would just use white buckets. And the, yeah. the idea is that, that you're focused on the cues and, yeah. and the, the getting there is the easy part. It's I want all this stuff right here to be right, to build yeah. the momentum. Yeah. Um you said something that I want to go back to real fast. You said you start the stop whistle early. Um, your dog stopped the way that I think dogs should stop. They stop because they they want to work with you. Yeah. Um, a lot of dogs you see stop very reluctantly. Yeah. Um, if there's too much pressure on the stop whistle, you see dogs stop because they're nervous not to stop. Um, I see that a lot. Dogs turn around like, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble. You know, and you really don't want a dog to feel like stopping is trouble. But you are breaking their momentum and and well i don't see it as that because i treat the stop whistle as a start whistle that's exactly what i wanted so to talk about so a lot of people will prevent you exactly that will use the, the whistle as preventing the dog from doing something i actually flip that the other way around and use this the stop whistle that or the hey look at me whistle um as starting so i mentioned to you about static casting left and right i would put the dog out remotely come back from where I was going to cast it so the, the right-hand dummy would be out there. I'd blow the stop whistle or the, hey, look at me, something great's going to happen whistle, and then cast the dog right. So the dog starts to get that association. That whistle means you're going to give the dog some new information to get what it wants. Right. Which you start that early. How are you doing that with puppies? We do games. So yeah, the, exactly. In the, the house games, I'll throw bits of food. Yeah. in the house and kitchen. So I'm starting to just get or a ball or something. So getting the dog um, spinning around and looking yeah. at where that food's going to come from or that ball's going to come from. We start that very early too. Just teaching them, hey, this is a great thing. It was, you stop and look at me and the whistle, that's the best possible yeah. thing. Yeah. But even still, 
even if it is a start whistle for the next thing, you have dogs who are bearing down on the line and they really want to get there and you've, you've interrupted them. Right. I mean, I know that, I don't know if you, maybe you haven't had this with any dogs, but I've had dogs who in drills and having fun, they love to stop and look at you, but Mm -hmm. stopping them going out can be a little more difficult. Yeah, because if they've got that, if you're stopping them running out towards something, then right. that's, that's going to, but that's your ultimate test, isn't it? So I wouldn't be stopping a dog running out towards a dummy early on as a youngster. Right, right. You would wait until um, you have I'd a very consistent. Got, I've got that consistent response that I would be absolutely certain the dog would spin up and look at me when I blew it. So I'm not going to test it like that. What, are, what is the importance to you of um, verbal rewards in the field massively important yeah um, and it's a transition from you know being close to the dog um, and being able to deliver say a reward ball or i mean i use a lot of positive reinforcement so that dogs will use i'll use bits of food uh, for things like recall or stops um a reward ball or toy or something uh, and also lavish the dog with you know reinfo- positive reinforcement in terms of praise so um it's something I've taken away from just a little bit of training we've done here is um, we talk in Cornerstone a lot about the timing of reward mm. and how important it is right really now. Important, and yeah. When you raise a youngster to appreciate verbal praise, it's, it's, yeah. you've tied yeah. it to all the other types of reward. So it's, yeah. it's uh, as I'm giving you this ball, it's also good boy, good boy, or whatever it's, it's that is. It's feedback to the dog, isn't it? It's yeah. communication. Yeah. So and the, you know what you reward you get more of so if you're telling the dog like if I see a dog doing really stylish hunting you know I'm going to say it's good boy you know just so I'm not going to keep blowing my hunt whistle because the dog's already hunting but what I'm going to say is I really like that what you're doing good boy keep yeah. doing and he'll go oh I'm getting rewarded for doing this this is great well, keep doing it it comes across very clear with your dogs we were working with Bray earlier you were wanting him to not square up jumping over a fence which is a whole other subject because we don't send dogs over fences because right. almost every fence we have is barbed wire. So right. whenever we bring right. them over, I'm very cautious and I even yeah. put my imports near a fence because I don't want them to get hurt. Mm. Um, but you didn't want him to square up. And so you kind of moved him back after he did square up, gave him a quick verbal correction. And then immediately as he's on the right line back, it's a lot of good boy, good boy. Yeah. What's great to watch from 10 feet behind you is how much your verbal praise turns up his speed everything as soon as he hears it he's like oh i'm doing right you know and he immediately like he gets faster and you can see his excitement level because yeah, he yeah. knows and that doesn't start at this age that starts at very young young age associating positive reinforcement yeah. with the right behavior so I, I love to watch that um i don't know how long we've been talking but it feels like it's uh, over an hour when we try to keep these mostly at an hour um so we probably need to wrap up fairly soon uh thanks for hosting right. me very it's much uh, nice I'm, to see you <laughs> yeah i'm excited uh to see how bray does obviously he's young in the championship this year so low expectations yeah, uh for you so. but yeah. congratulations on your eighth field trial champion it's special for me because i had his dad uh thank yeah. you for trusting yeah. us with him so I did. I gave him a little extra, extra food and some uh, some meat off the off my plate that night. He had no idea why, but he was excited nonetheless. Uh, we'll have to do a couple more because we could talk for probably an hour on genetics and breeding and all that. But without going into those weeds, uh, we'll call it good for this one. Thank you guys for listening to us. Um, I know you're not super active on social media, but if people wanted to follow along with you and Bray and your future dogs, where could they do that? 
Um, well, you've kind of said it. Yeah, I'm not ma massively active, but I have Stone to Bell Gun Dogs Facebook page. Yeah. Um, and a very inactive Stone Bell Gun Dogs <laughs> Instagram, Instagram is just page. Completely beyond me, I'm afraid. Yeah, we'll try to we'll try to help with that. But Stone Bell Gun Dogs on Facebook, you guys can follow Laura and her husband Derek and their dogs as they run trials um, and pick up here in the UK. So. Best of luck this uh, season in IGL and tomorrow and the last trial for you guys for the season yeah. and uh, appreciate you hopping on. Thank you very much.